0: Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with one of the relatively few people in the world who has actually been down inside an earthquake fault, Dr. Lucy Jones. In each episode, we thank you, our supporters, who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Please consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month to support the nonprofit work. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. And now, let's get to it. Whenever there's an earthquake, we ask, where was it, right? Everyone wants to know where it happened. We know from previous episodes of this podcast that earthquakes can happen almost anywhere, but when they do happen, they happen on a fault. That begs the question, what is a fault?
1: Well, if you define it as something that can produce an earthquake, which is one of the definitions, it's any place in the earth where things are a little weak, where something has broken. The other way to say it is it's a place where an earlier quake has happened and offset the rocks on each side. So geologists go out and map faults. And to be able to map a fault, the rocks need to have moved enough to recognize that they're different on each side. And that usually means that there've been a lot of earthquakes on that fault, but it might've happened a billion years ago. And while we still see the offset, that's an inactive fault. That's not moving now. What controls the size of the fault? Well, that's the amount of slip that's happened, which is how many earthquakes have happened over what period of time. You don't move a whole mapped fault in one quake. I mean, a magnitude 4 on the San Andreas Fault is only moving a few hundred meters of that fault that in fact is many hundreds of kilometers long.
0: And so this is like the old adage, which came first, the chicken or the egg? So which came first, the earthquake
1: or the fault? Depends upon the size of the earthquake. If the ground is getting pushed, there's stress on it trying to make the rocks move, and there's no fault there. The rocks end up having to be broken. The earthquake happens by actually breaking the rock, but that takes a lot of energy. And if you remember from our previous discussions, the length of fault that's moving is the size of the earthquake. If you're having to use all that energy to break the rock, you don't get to move very far and you have lots of little earthquakes. But once you've done that enough, now you start having lots of places that are broken and they start lining up and they start coalescing and you start having a fault that is smooth enough to be able to break in a larger earthquake. Remember that a magnitude seven needs to rupture through 50 kilometers or more of a fault. So you have to have all of that amount lining up. And eventually, and this is really millions of years, the fault gets worn smooth enough and it gets easier to start a quake and to keep it rupturing. So the really big earthquakes, the ones that are really going to do lots of damage, you do need to have a pre-existing fault and the fault comes before the earthquakes. But for the little earthquakes, that's actually how you make the fault and they come first.
0: And we're talking millions of years here, which is really important to remember. Can you give an example that we can point to here in California, perhaps?
1: Right. So the San Jacinto fault is a great example of a fault in development. The San Jacinto Fault is here in Southern California. It's parallel to the San Andreas, and we always call it part of the San Andreas system. Plate tectonics is trying to move Los Angeles to San Francisco, and that happens, a lot of it, along the San Andreas Fault. But the San Andreas has ended up getting bent. Here in Southern California, we have what we call the big bend of the San Andreas, and that forms our mountains as we try to push the rock on this fault that's now got a bend in it. It takes a lot of energy to build up mountains, so it's taking a lot of energy to keep moving on the San Andreas, even though it's no longer exactly lined up. It takes so much energy, it started being easier to break some fresh rock. And the San Jacinto Fault is forming To because it's a straighter line. It cuts off part of this bend, but because it's so young, it's not yet smooth enough. So we've reached the point on the San Jacinto that there are lots, there's still lots of little earthquakes as all of these things continue to form and smooth out. It's gotten to the point that it can have magnitude six and a half to sevens, but we are still seeing the eights out on the San Andreas fault because even though it's bent out of shape, that existing fault makes moving easier than this rough fault. That's still in formation, you know, it's sort of this adolescent fault. It is 700,000 years old. That's an adolescent in geologic terms. Give it another million years or so, and we will probably see the San Andreas abandoned and all of the slip happening on the San Jacinto to cut off that bend that was taking so much energy, and making so many mountains. As you're talking
0: about these faults that are forming, they're still what we call active. What's the difference between an active fault and an inactive fault? And we're talking, I know, millions of years.
1: Well, actually our definition of active is only 11,000 years. It's back to the time of the last ice age, because as the glaciers retreated, they left behind moraines, which can be offset by the faults, and that's easy to date and see. It's sort of a defining point where we know that it's moved in the last 10,000 years, that's almost certainly active. If it's been longer than that, we start using terms like potentially active. If it hasn't moved in the last few million years, we say it's inactive. But then you got to sort of have that moraine around. That's a certain amount of luck. In fact, back in the 1970s, Kerry C., who became a professor at Caltech, came up with the idea that we don't have to just look at the surface. We can dig into the fault and find out. So he dug a trench across the San Andreas Fault here in Southern California and was able to show really recent sediments he did it in a marsh so it's a place where sediments are getting deposited rapidly they can be dated because there's carbon in those marsh deposits and he was able to show that you could see when the earthquake went through you'd actually cut off that set of sediments and something else would get deposited afterwards and he was actually able to create a history of earthquakes even though of course people have only been here with written records for a couple of hundred years. He was able to take us back 3000 years and see the last dozen earthquakes there on the San Andreas Fault. His students and others have kept it going, and now it has become the standard that we use this what's called paleoseismology. those trenches that allow us to get down into the fault, as we said that I had done at one point, and give us that active history where in fact the geology wasn't gonna show it to us, so it gives us a lot more information.
0: So with all of that research and everything being done to understand the faults, when do faults actually matter to us, the public that's not studying them?
1: Well, really only when you're talking about the biggest earthquakes. When a fault moves in a big earthquake, you can't stop it. And if you have a building built across it, it will be ripped apart. Here in California, we have a law called the Aquas Priolo Act that tries to identify the active faults and keep buildings from being built across it elsewhere in the country, you really don't have that protection. Of course, you don't have as many active faults.
0: So is it likely that there are faults we don't know about yet? Not just the ones that are forming like the San Jacinto, but I think back to like the Northridge earthquake in 1994, Mm -hmm. and it was unmapped fault. Was it really unknown or, or was it clearly part of a known system with this particular strand being unmapped? Like, how does that relationship about where we know faults are or are not?
1: Well, it was part of an active system. If you looked at the maps we made before the earthquake, it was identified as an area with a relatively high probability of having an earthquake, because there were quite a few different fault strands around. This particular strand did not break to the surface, therefore, by definition, could not be mapped. It also then did not break through any houses because it didn't come to the surface. It's just one more reminder that knowing exactly where a fault is isn't really telling you your earthquake risk. Your earthquake risk, your risk from shaking is much broader than the risk of being cut through by a fault. So knowing you have a system of faults, exactly which strand gives the shaking really doesn't matter. It's only for that surface rupture that we need to be concerned about an individual strand.
0: When you do an interview after an earthquake, there's always the question from the reporters or journalists, Dr. Jones, can you tell us where this earthquake was? What fault was it on? There's this curiosity about what fault earthquakes are on when they happen, usually these smaller ones. Why do people ask that? Why is it such a, even though you've told them like the fault doesn't matter, it's a 3.2, why do you think that happens?
1: I think it happens because giving a name to a fault says somebody understands it. It puts that uncertainty that the earthquake gives us when the ground shakes and you don't know why, it puts it back into a contained box. It says somebody understands it. The Northridge earthquake, when we said there's no mapped fault, we don't have a name for it, people got really upset. I remember one geologist saying, why don't we just call it Fred and give them something to hold on to? That was a joke, but I think the need for certainty is really important. And the bigger the earthquake, the more we need it. What I think people need to understand, though, is in a big earthquake, it matters. In a little earthquake, it's moving on something the size of your house, maybe five miles below the surface. It has nothing to do with what we can map at the surface. And we need to say faults matter for big earthquakes, but we've really got to stop asking for them with small ones. It doesn't make sense.
0: Well, let's leave it there for now. Until next time, I'm John Buary with Dr. Lucy Jones and you, Getting Through It. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee, and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy
1: Jones.